Uh, so today's stuff is Chapei 25. We pick up, we'll, we'll back up a little bit, and we'll pick up at the bottom of Chafzal and Amud Bet. I just want to review two important points that came up in the last few days when I was gone and when it was Yantiv. Um, one is, I mean, we started a new parak, and one of the important points of the new parak is it introduces this idea that you cannot catch fish or wild animals on Yantiv. And that leads to an important discussion in the Rishonim, which is, uh, why not? If you can shecht animals, why can't you catch um, and that again leads to this question of is it really true that you can do any malacha associated with preparation of food so um, Rashi basically says that the only real problem is that you could have done it yesterday you could have taken care of it from beforehand um, which basically the Rishonim challenge they say if something really related to food direct food preparation not indirect and preparatory but direct food preparation even if you could have taken care of it beforehand you're allowed to do it on Yantav and anyway um, it's not clear according to Rashi would that make it biblically forbidden because in theory you could have done it beforehand so the only things that you're biblically allowed to do are things that you had no choice but to do on Yantav I mean again not no choice but it wouldn't have been as good like grinding spices wouldn't have been as good anyway that's Rashi's approach that basically gets rejected by the Rishonim there's enough evidence against that. So what's the difference? So Tosos quotes the Yerushalmi, the famous Yerushalmi connecting it to uh, Pesach, which we just left, that speaks about Ushmartim um, as that connects the idea of doing Malacha juxtaposed to a, p- a Pasuk about, uh, about watching the Matos from becoming Chomets. When do you have to watch the Chomets from becoming Chomets? When you add the flour to the water. So that the only Malachas that are allowed are Malachas that take place from the kneading, K-E-N-E-A-D-I-N-G-I-N. K-E-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, so obviously, now of course, how does that correspond to like meat? I mean, what corresponds to the kneading of dough? I mean, okay, but somehow trapping is too, is too early in the process. The problem with that, you show me, is that there are malachas that are allowed. We've seen in the Gemara, we've seen the discussion of rare under certain circumstances when it's immediately in the context of eating grinding spices, all these things that normally are in the malacha category before you get to the kneading of the dough. It's by the processing of the flour. Um, so that leads to a reconceptualization of what this idea is of milisha ve'elech. Um, and basically the way the Ramban says it, and again it sounds very clearly like he's talking at a dual rice at a biblical level, and this is the point I made before, is that it's a distinction between, remember I mentioned to you once before that the Ramban says there are two psukim that allow food preparation on Yantiv. One is achasher yeastel nefesh, things that are done for the sake of food, and the other is um, Anyway, and the other is that when it doesn't say that explicit allowance of it says as opposed to by Shabbos where it categorically prohibits so the Ramban here focuses on the word and he speaks about work that is done out in the field, liyamim harbei, for like, you know, for many, many days, like sort of a major processing, as opposed to work that is done like in the home for immediate eating of the food. And that does not, it's not a categorical list of avodot. You can have certain avodot like grinding, which if what you're doing is grinding your wheat and turning it into a flour, that's melechet 
Da. If what you do is grinding your spices to have freshly ground pepper or freshly ground spices, that's not melechet avodah. That's that's a um, you know that's like a type of a home based, uh, kitchen based type of a thing that you do. And really, it doesn't become a categorical list of melachot, but it's a difference between the types of things you do in the context of your home to prepare food and the things you do out prior to get before getting to the store out in the field, lo- large scale, long term type of a thing. And therefore, he says cat animals, you know, is that prior type of malacha. It's not the stuff you do in the immediate context of the making of the food. And that's well, yeah, but they don't go out and hunt that. I mean, they are hunters, but it's not the classic type of, you know, the Ramban says also you wouldn't do it because again, if you're living as a caveman and you're a hunter-gatherer, you have no choice. But if you're trying to live a domesticated life, you want to have the meat hunted from days before so you can you know, plan for it. So you don't have to risk whether you're going to catch the meat that day or not. Okay. Uh, believe me, my fishing abilities, I would not go out and fish and assume that that's the only, that that's what I'm going to rely on for food that well, night, okay? Not so clear. It depends on, no, if they were so contained, then then it would, they wouldn't be different than the animal case. The fish case is not allowed because you might, because it's less caught than the animals, which are already caught. Anyway, this is the basic. I'm not saying that you can't ask questions about this, but this is the basic distinction. Um, to, against which the Ron basically gives up, and he sort of he sort of buys into the Ramban's type of a distinction, but he doesn't feel that it can really work because he feels that if it were biblical, it would be a distinction between between actual categories of malacha, not the contexts in which they took place. And therefore, the Ron basically says it's all rabbinic. That biblically, you could do all this stuff. Biblically, you could go ahead and you could catch animals and harvest the wheat and grind the wheat, and it's all rabbinic these distinctions. But mostly, the Rishonim think it is biblical. But try to find exactly what is the you know clear way of making the line. The Ramban's conceptualization is probably the best. Where, where do we find that it's allowed, and where do we find it's not allowed? And this is the point I made before: things that are based on like the preparing of the home, going to the store and getting the stuff and preparing it at the home. This is also the caring aspect, as opposed to the stuff of, like before it gets to the store, if it was. Okay, so that's one issue I just wanted to review. The other issue that now we're in the middle of, the other very important issue, is the question about melacha um, of a non-Jew, or if a non-Jew brings from um, from chutz um, what is the story, or for non-Jew does melacha? Okay, so um, so the Gemara says like this. Um, let's, so we're going to pick up with that right now. Okay, um, five lines from the bottom. So there's obviously a, a muktzah issue. If the stuff was mechubar from before yantiv and it only got cut on yantiv or if it only got caught on yantiv, it's a muktzah issue. But now we're going to get to beyond even muktzah concerns and let's take a look five lines from the bottom. Amar Papa says Rapapa, Hilchusa, the halacha is, Nachli Shehevi Doron Yisrael Biyomtov. If a non-Jew brings a gift for a Jew on Yantav, in asur. If that type of a thing is, um, you know, normally um, uh, uh, like rose from the ground, is right now um, in a state of being harvested, so there's a chance that um, it was harvested today. In your area? Yeah, in your area. We just got through with the whole discussion that Suffolk Muchan is Asur. 
So then it is forbidden because it's muktzah. Okay, you have to assume that it was attached and it was harvested today, and therefore it's muktzah. Um, and in the evening, now in the evening there's no muktzah concerns, right? It's the evening after Yantav. So there's no muktzah. So nevertheless, it's still forbidden, in the amount of time it would normally take to get this done um, um, otherwise. Now, of course, how long do you measure that? Like, let's say the guy brings in, you know, a hundred bushels of apples. Um, is it how long it would take it to get done with a crew of 20 workers? Is it how long would it take it to get done if he was just, just the actual malachav picking the apple? Or is it the amount of time it would take to bring the apples now back, you know, to the city and where you are and where he's selling it? So that's an interesting question of measuring Bechdei Yasu. But the point is, you cannot benefit from these apples until you wait past, after Yantav, the amount of time it would take in order for them to be harvested. Now, why, I'll get to in a minute, but let's just understand that's his first point. And that's obviously not a Muktzah issue because it's Motzah Yantav. No, the Im Eim... Uh, well, we'll talk about that, but that's not even bracketing that. The Im Eim may also, I mean, be Mechubag. Now, let's assume that, you know, apples are no longer on the trees. It's post the apple season. So you know this stuff wasn't picked to gay. It's not a Muktzah issue. So what would the only be concern be? You know, and it's Yantav. It's not even a caring issue. So the only issue would be that maybe he brought it from Chutz B'Tchum. Okay, so mutar. If he brought it from within the tchum, it's permissible. Again, what are you doing exactly in the case of safek? It's not clear, but let's assume that you can assume it's brought from within the tchum. It's okay. top of If it was brought from outside of the tchum, then asur it is forbidden. That you cannot benefit from it. How long? But it's a similar type of an idea we're seeing that even when mux is not an issue, if the non-Jew did some violation in order to bring it to you, it remains forbidden. But if you brought it for one Jew, it's permissible for another Jew. So what we have here is, aside from any muksa concerns, like it's motza yantiv in the first case, or it wasn't even growing on the trees, there's still an idea that you cannot benefit from what a non-Jew did for you on Yontif. Um, and you have to wait and so on. Now, why not? So, there are two approaches here. Rashi and then all the other returns. What Rashi does is he ties this in to what we, uh, an idea we find in Shabbat, which is basically called being nene from the malacha of a non-Jew on Shabbos. So if a non-Jew lights a candle for you, besides that there's a prohibition, I can't say to him, please light that candle, okay? I mean, we're not going to talk about like, how you use, you know, how, how you ask like the maintenance people in the synagogue, because that has to do with Sarchei Rabim, and with indirection, and hinting, <coughs> and so on. But, in a simple case, I can't tell to a non-Jew, please light that candle for me, please cook this food for me on Shabbat. And if the non-Jew did it even without being asked, even if he just went there and he cooked it, but he cooked it for you, not for him. Not like he cooked it for him and it was left over. He lit a candle for him and there's light in the room. No, he did it because he said, I wanted to cook you this nice dish for you here on Shabbos. Here it is. So Allah is you're not allowed to benefit from it. That's the concept of the nana from Malechet Nachri deriving benefit from the malacha that a non-Jew did for a Jew on Shabbat. So that is the category that Rashi uses here to explain what is going on. And he says it's the same, therefore, if he does malacha for you on Yantav. And that's why it's Asurin even... Now, why is it Asur after Yantav? Okay? Normally, if a non-Jew lights a candle for me, does something for me, I can benefit from it after Shabbat. So Rashi says, no. Maybe as long as you are deriving benefit 
from it, meaning as long as you are eating the food or using the candle or eating the apples that were picked within the amount of time, you know, it, it, and there hasn't been enough time to do it after Shabbat, then you're still deriving benefit, right? If it takes an hour to get it done and I wait after Shabbat an hour and then I eat the fish or I eat the apple, then I didn't really get benefit from the Shabbos violation because even had there not been a Shabbos violation, I could be eating it now. But if I ate it within the hour after Shabbat, I derived benefit from the Shabbos violation because that allowed me to eat it immediately rather than to have to wait the time it would have taken. So for Rashi, the reason you have to wait is so that it should not be a way of deriving benefit from Shabbos violation, which it will be in that time that it would normally have taken it to be done because then you benefited from the fact it was done on Shabbat. That's how Rashi says, one minute, that's how Rashi says what's going on here. That's the problem, deriving benefit. What? No, on Shabbat it's obviously not okay, but it's even not okay after Shabbat. And the same is true on Yom as well in the period of Bichdei Sheyatsu. Now, why therefore does Rashi say that therefore if it comes, um, if it's now Habab Yisrael Yisrael Zed Mutal Yisrael Acher, normally we say that if a non-Jew, if I cooks a fish for you or picks an apple for you on Shabbat, no other Jew can use it. It was a malacha done for a Jew on Shabbat. No Jew can derive benefit. So Rashi says, well, okay, maybe that's in this special case of, tch- of Tchum. When the only problem was Tchum, and it's only a rabbinic problem, then we were lenient and allowed another Jew to drive benefit. This is more sharply said by Ramban. And Ramban says, and this is a whole fascinating issue about how do you define what it means to benefiting from Melacha on Shabbat. Let's say the Melacha didn't produce anything didn't create anything new. Now, what malacha doesn't create anything new? So, the biggest malacha that doesn't create anything new is carrying. If a non-Jew carries for me on Shabbat, can I derive benefit? Or do you say that, uh, you, you say, no, you did a malacha, you're deriving benefit. You say, no, because the idea of not deriving benefit is that the Shabbos violation created this new reality, and I can't benefit from this new reality. Carrying is not a new reality. It's not cooked food. It's just here rather than there. Okay, so, well, it's new for you. That's true. Well, it's accessible to you. So there actually is a debate about whether this idea of nene from Melechet Shabbat applies to carrying. Um, but what clear, this case of tchum is even weaker than carrying. Because tchum is, is that is basically like other people did have access to it. You know, and it could actually be carried. It's just a question of like where you're located and where it's located. And other Jews even had access to it. So the Ramban says maybe that's why we go a little bit more lenient here and we let another Jew get benefit, especially because other Jews could have been within their tchum, hypothetically. So anyway, that's a special exception to this idea of tchum. But the basic point is, you cannot derive benefit from Melechet Shabbat or Melechet Yantiv. Even another Jew cannot. This, and there's this one exception of this issue of tchum. But the basic point that Rashi says is, this is the principle of Melechet Shabbat being nene. One minute. That's Rashi. Tosvos and Ramban and all the other Rishonim and Lehalacha reject that opinion say, yes, that is a concern, but that's not what's going on here, because that, we never find that Melechet Shabbat is usher after Shabbat. 
And if once ahead, basically, if um, well, if I, if a Jew, let's say, cooks an apple for another Jew, so he, you know, so or, or whatever, or a Jew just cooks an apple on Shabbat or picks an apple on Shabbat, that apple for him it might be also for forever, whatever. But for other people, for the non-violator, not the person who wasn't the non-violator, it's permissible immediately after Shabbat. And they say this idea of Bichdei Yasu does not apply by normal Melechet, Melechet Shabbat. It applies specifically by Melechet done by a non-Jew. Why does it apply specifically by Melechet done by a non-Jew? Because Melechet done by a non-Jew is not just a problem that it was a Shabbos violation that created the fact that this thing now is, I'm benefiting from a violation. If it was done by a non-Jew, there's another concern. The concern is, is that it, is, is that I'll start it'll 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 lead me to, a, to proactively ask him to do it. Okay, if you let me benefit from food cooked on Shabbat by a Jew a minute after Shabbat is over, it would never in a million years. And sadly, today it's different because you know a lot there's a lot of people that like you know that 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 don't operate within a context of any sense of halacha and so on. So like, oh, we'll just get this guy. He doesn't he you know he doesn't keep halacha anyway. We'll get him to do it. I mean, that's a big problem. Like actually, some posts can say that when it comes to doctors in the hospital, the dafka should not ask their non-observant. Jewish doctor to, um, to, to to take their shift on Shabbos because you know oh he'll see that he doesn't keep Shabbos anyway. no Adaraba you know if you're taking the shift you'll be more careful to only do the things you're allowed to do on Shabbos as opposed to if you give it to so, so anyway that raises an interesting issue but at least at the time of the Gemara the assumption was that like it would never occur to me just because you're letting me eat this picked apple a minute after Shabbos that that's going to be next Shabbos for me to ask my fellow Jew who happened accidentally to pick it today that'll lead me next job is to proactively ask him. Never in a million years. But if you let me benefit from the apples that a non-Jew picked, and you let me benefit from them immediately after Shabbat, you know what I'm going to do next Shabbat? I'm going to make an arrangement for him to pick them on Shabbat so that I'll have those apples immediately Motzei Shabbat. Like I have people ask me, can we get a non-Jew, arranged for a non-Jew on the last day of Pesach to go out to Dunkin' Donuts and buy us like all of these bagels and donuts and that will be ready for us at my rib on Motzei Pesach that we'll be able to eat from it right away. So that gets to issues of owning chametz and whose chametz is it, but you know, that's the thing you'd want to do. Have them do it on Yantav, have them do it on Shabbat, so it's available immediately after. So they say because it's a non-Jew, it actually makes it worse. Because it's a non-Jew, not only does it have the Malechat Shabbos aspect, that would be on Shabbos itself, but that's why it goes and extends to after Shabbat, after Yantiv, Bechteisha Yasu. So according to the Tosos and the Ramban and all the other Rishonim, Bechteisha Yasu is only a concern by the Malacha of a non-Jew. Okay, and, um, and that's basically how they explain that what's going on here is unique to that aspect. Yes, uh, Two questions. You know, one they say is Mukhubar, Asur, whatever. Can he be believed? Say, like, oh, I know it's Mukhubar. Yeah, so that's not clear whether it's, whether, how, I mean, look, we learned before the issue of Safek, so Safek Muchan, it would be an Asr, presumably based on what we said before. The other question is, what about Safek Chutz Litzchum? But anyway, I'm, I'm not getting into that. That is a question, yeah. Like, you know, I, I think it also would depend on what it is. Like, let's say, you know, he's, he's on his way back from, you know, Virginia, and he stopped along somewhere else, and he brought me something he can only find there. Right. I'm still being, even if it took, even if I could say, okay, at least five hours, wherever the drive is, but there's no way I'm going down there. Right. I'm still benefiting from the fact that he did it. Right. You know? I mean, that is true. Well, no, but you could have had him do it for you. But, but he wouldn't. You know what I mean? Like, you know, oh, because he wasn't on his way back. 
have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean there's only some de- to a certain degree that we can quantify it. I'll just end by giving you one interesting nafkamina, by the way, in addition to the Bechtesha Yasu question, which is Rashi raised the question that Michael said, what about if it's a two-day yantiv? Let's say he does melacha for me on day one of yantiv. Can I benefit from it on day two, Bechtesha Yasu? So, so Rashi says, yes, I can. Why? It's the whole type of the, like, of the, of the sake of the Yoma. If yesterday was cold, <coughs> he was allowed to do the apple picking. If yesterday was Yantiv, then today is Chol, and then in, hypothetically, he could have picked the apples for me for in the last two hours since the second day of Yantiv began, so therefore I can benefit it two hours into the second day of Yantiv. So Tosa says, yeah, Rashi, I mean, I'm paraphrasing this, that works only according to you, because you think it's a, it's a conceptual issue of benefiting from Melechus Yantiv. So for you it's enough that hypothetically, he could have picked it today if today was Chol. So therefore, you're no longer benefiting from the violation because hypothetically it could have been done either yesterday or today, depending on which one was was Yantiv and which one was called. But this is, but as far as me, I don't care about hypothetic. I care about practical. Is this going to lead you to get the non-Jew to, to, to ask the non-Jew to do something for you? And you know what the answer is? Yes, yes it will lead you. If you let him me benefit from what he does on day one and eat from it on day two, then that's going to lead me next Yantiv to proactively have him do something for me on day one, so I can benefit from it on day two. So those are, it's all very nice hypothetically sake of the Yomar, but in practice, Bechtei Sheyasu has to wait till after Yantav when you really would have had to wait to have done it if you were doing it yourself. Okay, so that's a very important debate about that issue of um, a non-Jew doing Malachah for you and we pass on like Tosus' interpretation of that issue. Okay, yes. Yeah, in terms of Joseph's yeah. Were you asking about the woman who works for you? Yeah. So if she cooks for herself, can she just eat that food from uh, what? What? Joseph has a woman who works for him. Yeah. So if she's cooking a meal... Oh, if she does it for herself... Yeah, I mean... Yes, let's put aside the issue of Vishalakum, but this is all of it's done for a Jew. If the non-Jew does it for her, for him or herself, then you can benefit from it. Okay. So now the Gemara says like this. All right. So that was a little bit of catch-up. Now we're already behind. I'm a Rav of Harav I'm a Rav. Hasocha amaz hamayin ne'erav yom tov, u'machachachim mutarim. So you closed up your, um, your, uh, whatever, uh, um, your, what, what's it called? Uh, a channel? Of, anyway, your, you, you know, you, you're like the sluice gates? What is it? What are those yeah. things called? Anyway, whatever it is, your, your irrigation channel, you closed it up, so no new water was getting in. It was a closed system, and you did an Erev Yantav, and presumably, um, in there, it's, anything that's in there is considered already caught. It's small enough. We had that discussion. So therefore, and the next day you woke up and you saw b- bl- uh, fish on Yantav, they're permissible because they obviously were caught from Erev Yantav and they were Muchan. From the words of our rabbis, meaning Rav, we can learn of a rabbi, we can learn, um, if a wild animal, a deer, basically made its nest, you know, in a, a garden, like set, you know, sort of set up its little home, um, and the assumption here is also gave birth to a young or had very young, an- young children with it, um, it does not need to be pre-designated, meaning two things. Number one is the animal is considered already caught because maybe it's a very young animal and maybe even, you know, it doesn't even really walk around so much on its own and because, again, it's sort of like, you know, accessible and you, you're thinking about it, it's considered to be muchan. So 
both not a problem of Munkar and Munkhan. Wait a minute, the Gemara is not, they're not done. Amar of Dachman, Nafuch Avrayim Berav Ravasa, our friends, our colleagues, meaning Rav Chizda, who spoke about our rabbi, you know, our rabbi Rav, so he says our friend Rav Chizda got himself into a, into a debate of great ones. Because that meaning, that's not so obvious, and we'll see in a minute, that you can infer from the case of fish caught in a pond to anim- wild animals that are nesting. Some say, some say that it was Rabbi Baruch Huna said, uh, it wasn't Rav Chizda that said, it was Rabbi Baruch Huna himself said, from the words of our rabbi we learn, um, okay, he was the one that said that, that inferred from the case of fish to the case of wild animals that nested. And then it was Rav Nachman who said, not our colleague, but the son of our colleague, because this was Rabbi Bar Rav Huna. So Rav Huna was their colleague. Anyway, he got himself mixed up into a debate. What's the debate? So either way, the question is you can't really infer from the fish to the wild animals. Hosam loko avid masa. There, in the case for the wild animals, you didn't do anything. They just took up nesting on their own. So what's there to indicate that you're planning, even if they're considered already caught and they're not wild or whatever, and they don't need being caught, what makes them not muksa? They just did it on their own. There's nothing that reflects the reality that you're planning on using them. Um, there's just something that happened out in the wild. Hocha, I mean, even if the party is your back, even if it's your garden in your backyard, there's nothing that designated it that you were planning on using. Hocha, ka'avi masa. Here you did something. You closed the uh, sluice gates. You actually did something that caught the fish. Okay, the loba. So now the Gemara says, the loba yezimon. Now you go to, so first of all, I don't think that it's necessarily so clear. You know, hypothetically, you could distinguish. And now the Gemara is going to say, it's not only hypothetical, I'm going to show you evidence. That you, that you need zimun, you need designation in this case of the wild animal. The Hatan, we taught in Brisa, Chaya Shakinin of the a wild animal sort of took up lodging in a garden. Um, you have to designate, you have to verbally say, I plan on using that baby deer tomorrow on Yantus. Okay? Uh, and a tzipor drawer, which is like a, um, um, now, uh, now, if that's an animal that you actually did designate from the day before, although drawer, cross and drawer, ba'aretz, normally means like wild, but we saw tzipor drawer before. Anyway, but that would be a, a bird that you caught and designated from the day before. Nevertheless, you need to tie up its wings, not, not to do the act of zimun, but so you don't get confused which is the bird you designated and which was the one you did not. Okay? The ima. And you shouldn't confuse it with its mother because apparently Rashi says this is a species of birds that the young are almost the same size as the mother. So even though it's a little nest and you say, oh, I know I'm going to use the chick, no. It'll be confused and you have to tie up its wings. And this is actually the testimony that goes all the way back to Shmaya and Avtalion, the rabbis of Hillel and Shammai. So Tiusa. So he says, all right, that's a contradiction. That shows you that in this case of the wild animal, when you didn't do an act, you need to lizamein. So now the Gemara says, umi zimun. So now the Gemara switches gears. One minute, is that really true? You do, is, do you really need zimun in this case of the wild animal? The hot tanya, we turn the price up. I'm Reb Shimon Alezer. Says Reb Shimon Alezer, "Modi beit Shama yibeit Hillel al shiiz minam betochakan umatzalif neakan shasurim." You might remember that going back to the first parak that the the ones the birds you designated inside of the nest and then you found birds outside of the nest they're forbidden because you have to be afraid these aren't the same ones that you designated. The nezvar mamurim. When is this true? Biyone shovach. Biyone aliyah. 
uh, this is true about birds of the coo- uh, of the uh, uh, coop and birds of the um, of the loft. And birds that have taken up nests in like the uh, little crevices in the wall. Aval, aval, meaning normally birds that are normal wild birds. Okay, so those are ones that need zimun, and these might not be the ones that you are mizamein, because normally they're not understood to be ones that normally you're planning on using. Aval, avazim v'tarnigolim, if you're a farmer and you've got ducks and chicken, the yone hardisiot and, uh, um, you know, Herodian pigeons, which are normal ones that were kept for breeding and ones that you would regularly use, like if you're hungry, you'll just go out to your chicken, your, your pigeon coop and check the pigeon for tonight. V'chaya shikinin so in addition to those animals you normally draw on for your meals, also, a wild animal, deer, let's say, that took up lodging in your, in your garden, mutarin, that's permissible without any zimun. So here we see, so everything worked that made sense, things you normally use for eating as opposed to things that you, maybe even some things you're even raising but you don't normally use for eating, you know, which do need zimun, which do not, but the wild animal that took up nesting is a contradiction. One writer said, according to Shmaya Naftalian, it needs zimun, and this writer says that that wild animal does not need zimun. One minute. The ain't shichim zimun. The tzipor drawer shichalik shabbos nafel kadesh lo tichalef biima. What we said before, this type of bird, the tzipor drawer, even if you were mizamein it, you need to bind up its wings so you don't confuse it with its mother. Vamikusharim vaminunaim and things, by the way, that have bound up birds and birds that have obviously been disturbed and moved. The baroti bevatimu b'shichinu b'meirot. Whether you find them in wells and in houses or in other types of like. Uh, uh, um, no, oh, no, no, no. and Orot is a. Uh, it goes with yeah. Bor and Shiach is a um, is a uh, is a uh, what do you call it? It's a um, it's, it's a type of a well. It's a well with a uh, um, yeah. Bor and Shiach go together. Um, 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 and in the and in caves, mutarim um, they are permissible. Um, meaning ubilanot asurim. But so all these things, even if you were mizamein them, they're permissible if they are in in all these various locales. But they're forbidden if they're in trees. Why? Even though you were mizamein them, because how are you supposed to get access to them? And you say, oh, just pick it off of the branch. We don't let you pick it off of the branch because we're afraid you'll come to climb up and to pull off branches and to use the trees. So that's another point. In addition to being mizamein them, you have you can't get that you can't get access. To them if they're in trees. Now, if they are bound birds, or they've obviously somehow been moved, I don't know how you would see that, but somehow you see that they've been handled by people, and they're not yours, so all that was your birds, you, you don't, some of them that are, the, certain ones you don't need to be mizamein, others you need to be mizamein, and you need to, but you need to sort of like tag, and then, you know, and they have to be in certain places that you can have access to them. But if they are ones that have been tagged by other people, then then obviously, then forget Yantiv. You can't anyway take them. Clearly, there's somebody else's, and it's forbidden because of Gezel. Okay, that was, uh, I don't know, pretty, pretty obvious, but it has to do with issues of Kinyanim. And anyway, not related to Yantiv. So anyway, we have our problem here about wild birds that took up nesting in a garden. Do they need Zimun or not? So, Amar of Nachman Lokasha. No, it's not. A, the difference is the child or the mother. This deer took up nesting in your garden, so the baby deer that can't easily w- get away that doesn't need zimun. The mother deer, the deer that can run away that needs zimun. 
So the Gemara, because, you know, it's not going to be easy to catch it. So the Gemara says, Ima, the Zimun Sagila? I don't get it, says the Gemara. The mother, Zimun isn't enough. It's not just an idea of Muktza. Say the Malusabaya. Right? It's not in any cage. You would actually have to trap the mother. So there's always two issues. So we're assuming all these animals are already trapped. And the only question is Zimun. But the Gemara says, how is this wild deer in your garden already trapped? Maybe the, maybe the baby is effectively trapped, but not the mother. So you can't say that the mother is the one that needs Zimun. The mother is usher completely. But you can't trap it. Was it it's set up as nest in a domesticated area. It was up until that kasha being treated, I thought, as if it were trapped of its own, as it were. Uh, no, because, well... For, well, that's what the Gemara is revealing, is that, is that even if it's in a domesticated area, right, if you have a deer walking in your backyard, and but, uh, yes, but the, right, but the assumption here, what the Gemara is revealing is, is that the mother deer is not going to wait around to be trapped just because she set up a nest. But up until that kasha... Yes, you might have thought that. This Right, this reveals that the key number of her days only works for the child who cannot easily escape. That is correct. The Gemara did not make that clear until this point. Okay. I mean, Rashi did, but the Gemara or did not. So, Ella Amar of Nachman Rav Yitzchak, Aidiv Aidibididah. Fine. We're talking in both cases about the child. And in both cases, you know, it's already considered trapped. It's not going to easily get away. So, do you need Zeman or not? But here's the difference. The question is, where is this uh, garden? Is it basically in your backyard? Um, or is the garden out in some, you know, in your apple orchard somewhere out at the edges of the city? So again, now it's a question of effectively it's trapped. If you wanted to, you could capture it without any problem. But does it need Zimun? So if it's a baby deer in your backyard, it doesn't need any act. You can assume you're going to pull young. It's great. They'll have some venison for Yantiv. And you don't need any words and you don't need anything. It's considered to be in your mind. Presumably you know about it, that you would plan to use it. Whereas if it's not so local, then it would need Zimun. Yes. I guess I was trying to understand from the beginning was when you say after home about the mine area on Tovah it's okay for this but how is that any different than the Zagim and the Biberim? Like, yeah, we have to assume that it's a smaller space a smaller than the so Biberim. Yeah. It's a very big one. So yeah. Like, you know, Basically. It's, it's like, you know, you put in your net you're definitely going to get something. Right. Yeah. Yes, effectively. Yeah, I mean, that, you have to assume something like that. Right. right. You know, it's still right. Yeah, correct. Well, rather, no, but that would not affect the issue about about what do you call it about about Seder Mal Yusubaya. I don't see how that could at all be relevant to that. And our basic issue is to explain the Zimun question. So being local addresses the issue of Zimun. It does not address the question about how much trapping it means. Like being being local or not local. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, but Tzedem al so therefore you're right, we're not talking about the mother. The Gemara is shocked at the suggestion of the mother. So the basic answer is forget the mother. You're right, it's just a mukta issue, it's just about the child. The fact that it says bidida and not be, you notice the word haba habiima. It doesn't say ha bivlad habiima. Or, you know, ba means it's always been assuming the subject has been the child. For you, that was a chiddush, but the Gemara has been assuming that the subject has been the child. Okay, next Mishnah. Behema misukenes lo yishkod elin kenyeh shahus biyom lachomim yanatizayit sleep. 
So here again we get the issue of doing certain malachas on yantav that are allowed for sochavochal nefesh, but in your mind you're also thinking about after yantav. So like shechting an animal because you want to eat just a little bit and the rest of the meat is going to be for after yantav, or filling up a whole pot and you're only going to eat a little bit, but you have the rest of it for after yantav. So here you have an animal that's about to drop dead out of old age. Now, it's not a trace, if it was a trace of shechting, it wouldn't help, but it's about to drop dead out of old age. If you wait till after Yantav and it drops dead, it's a Nevela, right? It did not have a kosher shita. So you want to shecht it on Yantav, not so much because you need an extra hamburger on Yantav, but because you don't want to waste the entire animal. And if you shecht it on Yantav and you shecht it before it dies, it won't be, it'll be kosher. So it says you cannot shecht it unless you have time, the amount of time to eat at least one roasted kezayis on Yantav. So then, in theory, we could say it was being done for the sake of Yantav. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't say you have to actually go ahead and roast that kezayis, and that has to be your intent is to eat, right? That was the whole thing, right? When it talks about filling up a whole pot of stew, even though, you know, you know, as long as you're doing a little bit for Yantav, how much can it be like a trick? How much can it be, oh, I'll take a little taste now, and that counts, even though most of it is for after Yantav, and how much does it have to really be that you really do want to be eating from this stew right now? So the mission here doesn't say that El it all says only as long as it theoretically you could eat a tzayis that would be enough. Even a raw tzayis of meat, in theory you could eat raw meat. So even a raw tzayis of meat from the place it was shechted, you just grab from the neck area because that's already where it's slayed and it's easy to get access. So you just need a few seconds to grab a tzayis from the neck. Well, that's the issue about salting. If you don't. Um, if, if, uh, if, 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 if the blood doesn't come out and go back in, it doesn't need salting. Um, that's the same reason why roasting meat doesn't have to get all the blood out. Shita, now, shechta b'sadeh lo yivenu b'motu b'mota avomeli b'yadoe varim varim. If you did shecht this or any animal out in the field, you cannot bring it in unlike these uh, beams, you know, like sort of those whole pet, you know, images of like, you know, the spies bringing back the grapes. You know, you can't bring it back on these like cross beams or whatever, these carrying beams, because that makes it feel like, you know, like a weekday, like you're bringing the whole animal slaughter animal you know from the market you know to the marketplace or something but you can bring like it in sections and bring back sections at a time you know in your hand even though it's more kircha but it's less of the dechal okay Dov you had a question what I didn't understand about this Mishnah ever was um, it's not habamina that you can eat from a misukenet. Yes. Until the chatzchila, the assumption was that you're looking at a trefa. No, so that's what I said. That trefa is different than it's okay. Trefa is different than is means that it might die out of old age or disease. But trefa specifically is that it has like a puncture. So you could have an animal that's about to die that is not a trefa. Okay, which is also the Gemara distinguishes between somebody who kills a, an, a person who's a trefa and somebody who kills a what do you call it? and somebody you know and um, and um, and right and any a person who's a ghost face a ghost face person is about to die but he's not in the category of a trefa. Okay, so Amarami Bar Ava. So when the Torah speaks about bringing a korban ola, it says, yeah. So, okay. So you should flay it and cut it into its members, you know, and put it sort of, a, and, and chop it into its parts. So the Torah says it by an ola, but the same is true about butchers, that after you shecht it, you need to flay it and chop it into its parts. 
what is that telling you? The Torah is teaching you a proper way of behaving. You should not eat meat before you've had a chance to flay it and to chop it up. You shouldn't be so ravenous that you, as soon as an animal is shechted, you're like, well, that mother's going to ask. You stuff it in your mouth. Now, this seems to be simply saying just an issue about Derek Eretz. Don't be ravenous. You know, wait for us to flay and to chop it up and so on. But the Gemara is going to think that maybe he's even making a halachic point, not just a Derek Eretz point. So the Gemara says, my What's the point of this? To, to, to reject the position of Rav Huna. Rav Huna. Rav Huna says the following. An animal while it's alive. You know, a walking around, living, breathing animal is forbidden. Even a cow. Because it's not shechted. Um, unless you know that it was shechted properly. Now, what's the point of saying that? It's not that you have to shecht an animal. It's saying, if you have a doubt whether the shechita was done properly, you don't know if there was a nick in the knife, and whether the nick in the knife came before or after the shechita, he's telling you, well, it had a cheskes iser. Before it was shechted, it had a label of being asur. And you cannot re- remove that status of Cheskat Isser unless you definitely know that it was shechted properly. So if it is a different Isser. The Tosos creates an Isser. Rabbi says, Abram Yenachai. So says, that's a different Isser than not shechting it properly, which is Nevela. So Tosos says, okay, he creates this Isser called Eno Zavuach, not shechted, which applies whether it's alive or dead. Based on the mitzvahs, uh, he says, it does not say, the Zavachta V'yachalta. Okay, so he says, it has a status of Isser, Cheskat Isser, and therefore any doubt about the Shechita, it remains also, you need to definitely know the shechita was done correctly. That's point number one. Nishchita. Um, now, let's say you know the shechita was done correctly. The knife was done was perfect. You watched it. It was a perfectly executed shechita. Then it has a presumption of being mutar. And now, and until you know for sure that there was a trefa, which means we assume animals are not a trefa, you shecht an animal that has a cheskas hetzer. And therefore, you do not have to now verify and that there are absolutely no trephas in the animal. You do not now have to check every single organ and make sure that there are no trephas. It has a cheskas hetzer, and any doubt is not a problem unless you know for certain that it actually is a trephas. So here it works the opposite. Any doubt is ignored unless you know for certain it is a trephas. Now, by the way, that's not exactly the halacha. The halacha distinguishes between two types of doubts. Amir HaMatsoi and Amir She'eno Matsoi. Amir She'eno Matsoi is normally defined as, let's say, less than 5%, you know, occurrence. We don't have to be concerned with it all. But once something happens 5% or more of the time, then the assumption is that if it's possible to check, we need to check. And that's why we check, like, the lungs. Because problems in the lungs happen 5% or more of the time. So since it's available to us to check, we need to check. But let's say you lost the lungs. You shechted the cow, and somehow the cat made off with the lungs. The halacha would be, Mutter! It has a cheskas hetzer. So even if you've got some doubt, if you don't know, if it's possible to check, maybe you do check. But if it's not possible, it's mutter until you know for sure that it's usher. That's what Rav Huna says, we pass in that way. So maybe you're coming to reject Rav Huna. You're saying, don't eat from it until you flay it and dismember it. Maybe the reason you're demanding flaying and dismembering is to give us a chance to do what? to say, we have to check it for trefas before we're going to let you eat from it. So the Gemara says, Our Mishnah supports Ravuna that halachically it's allowed. Non, Rabbi Akiva Omer, You can even have a raw kezayis of meat from the place it was shechted. So you see, you don't have to halachically wait to check for trefas. 
So the Gemara says, "My love needs to be chasamamish." Does it not literally mean from the place in the neck where it was shechted? Lo mimakom shetovachat achilata. No, what it means is from the place where the food gets ground and gets digested, meaning from the stomach meat, which is very bizarre. Why would Rabbi Akiva say, yeah, as long as you can eat a kazais of the stomach meat? So, because Rashi says, because, because maybe that's like considered like easily digestible or something. I don't know. It's very bizarre. Something you would be prepared to eat raw. Like, I won't eat my raw unless we're talking about the organ meat. Then I'll eat raw. I don't know. So, the Rabbi says, but that's not true, because Rabbi Chiyah says, in the, it has a bright mamash that literally Rebbe Akiva means the place where it was shechted the, the neck meat so anyway you see that you do not halachically nobody disagrees that you need to dismember it and check we all agree you don't need to, you can eat from it before you've checked for trefos so therefore what is the point of saying that you need to flay it and dismember it Ella Rami Barchama not Rami Barchama who was it Rabbi Bar Abba Orchus Ara Kamash Malan. Like he said from the outset, he wasn't telling us halacha. You're right, halachically, it's mutter even before you've checked it. He was just telling us basic derech eretz. Don't be so ravenous to, uh, to, 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 to tear from the meat before it's been flayed and dismembered. Kiritanya, like we taught in the Brysa, do not eat a garlic or an onion from the from the top of it, meaning I guess we would call it the bottom of it, but rather from the place where the leaves grow out, from what we would call the top. Anyway, somehow if you eat from towards the root of it, that's like, oh my God, you're so ravenous, you can't even w- wait to eat it in a normal way. Again, I don't know exactly why that shows that you're ravenous, maybe because you don't even want to bother to have to pick the leaves. And if you eat that way, you're showing yourself to be ravenous. The whole point of bringing this in is to show that sometimes rabbinic literature addresses itself not to halachic questions, but just not to act in ways that are ravenous. And that was the point of the teaching of the raw meat as well. Similarly, don't drink up uh, your entire glass in one gulp, presumably talking about wine. And if you did, then you are a, also like ravenous or a glutton or whatever the, or whatever the uh, liquid equivalent is of a glutton. What? Oh, about the whole thing? Well, they say you're supposed to have like a rogue coast, but um, but not the whole glass. Right. It's not the whole thing. So, yeah. Sometimes, you know, you really like that, oh my God, I didn't realize how the high baby does, because once you start drinking, you go, So, anyway, Tana Rabbanan, a rabbi's taught, Hashosa Kosovavasachas, if you drink it all down in one gulp, Hareza Gargaran, you're a ravenous. Shnayim in two gulps, that's like the normal way. Okay, shlosha. If you just so sip it so daintily and slowly, three, 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 three separate drinks, bigasi haruach. Then you're being very haughty. All right. But almost anyway, you see though that we bother teaching you about how to act in ways that are just civility. Civility, right? So the chatsuva, uh, which is basically a type of a graph that grows straight down and it was used the Gemara says by Yehoshua to show the boundaries of the land that you have this grass that grows straight and it clearly demarcates the boundaries that cuts the legs out from under the wicked people what does that mean? so Rashi says it's more symbolic that you see there's this grass that grows straight and keeps exactly in its boundary and if you're a type of person that's coveting and stealing land that's not yours you should have learned a lesson from the grass 
The Marsha says it's better than learning a lesson. What you're going to do is you're, you, you, you want your neighbor's field, you mow down the grass, you stake a claim in his field and you say it's yours, and then when you start digging up the land underneath, you see the roots of this grass and of this weed, and that proves that you stole his land. So it undercuts your legs because this grass basically undercuts his legs. Um, you know, shows that, you're, that, that, that this person was stealing. Now you'll see why, why we're mentioning this because of, because of the next line. The plantings, which means the fact that you have to wait three years before you can eat from the fruit of a tree because of Orla, so you invest all of this time and effort and you need a lot, a lot of patience and self-restraint, and that's what the Torah tells you by Orla, that should be a lesson for the butchers and for the Boalei Nidot. So the butchers are the people that, as we've been talking about, that, um, that, you know, that will eat the meat before they've had a chance to check for trefa. Now, even though we just said technically you don't have to check for trefa, you can assume it's mutter, but nevertheless, you know, the proper thing to do is, who wants to find out a week later that because you rushed to eat the meat, and you didn't check, that winds up, you ate trefa. So you know what? You should learn a certain amount of restraint and patience from the principle of Orla, even if technically you're allowed to eat from the meat before you've laid and dismembered and checked it. And similarly, certainly the case of Baalei Nidot, men, you know, they cannot wait to have sex with their wives before they've had chance to go to the mikvah. They should learn a lesson from how much patience it takes in the case of Arla. So sometimes you need a little patience before you can have some of the pleasures in life. Tormisa, so anyway, that was the tie-in. Tormisa, Mekatea and the Sanancha Yisrael. Now, Tormisa, which is a type of a bean that required cooking seven times before it could be eaten, that undercuts the legs of the enemies of the Jews, which means the Jews. Shinemar, as the verse says, they continue to evil in the eyes of God. They worship the foreign gods. Count, count the number of different foreign gods. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now this tormentor requires seven cookings before it could get ready, before it could be eaten. That's all. Hashem, Hashem, and they abandoned God and didn't worship Him. Once it says they abandoned God, any of their shalom do? I don't know they didn't worship him. What does it mean they didn't worship him? Even like this bean, that you cook it seven times, the and you just eat it for a dessert. They didn't even treat me like this bean. Now, what does that mean? What's the idea? So Rashi indicates two different interpretations. Who is the bean here? So one is that the Jewish people are the bean. Because for with every time that they worship the foreign gods, God punished them. So it's like they were punished seven times because they worshiped seven foreign gods, like the bean that was cooked seven times, and the lousy bean after being cooked seven times becomes edible. You get cooked seven times and you still abandon God and you get, you know, suffering, you still abandon God. The other interpretation, it sounds though a little bit more like God is the bean, right? So what does that mean? So the Marsha says it means because the bean you eat as a dessert and what God is saying is, you not only worship these other gods seven times, you didn't even have me worship me together with the other gods. You completely abandoned me. Like, you didn't even have me for dessert, you know? So, that was the problem. Okay. Um, now, since we're uh, talking about worshiping other gods or whatever, anyway, somehow this is loosely connected. Why was the Torah given to the Jewish people? Uh, maybe we want to say something nice about Israel rather than end on a negative note. 
Um, where were we? Because they are very hard and, and stubborn. So, what does that mean? So, Tanah Zbeir Rebbe Shmel, Mimino Eshtas Lamo, from God's right hand is a fiery law for his people. These people are so tough, they can handle this law of fire. Ikeda means some say, Datem Shel Elu H. Their whole way, the way of the people, is this fiery way. What does that mean? That you need the Torah to soften them up. They're so, like, you know, adamant and stiff-necked, basically, and hard, that if it weren't that the Torah was given to them, they would, you know, be destructive towards the other nations. So they need the Torah to, like, you know, to, to correct them a bit. So it seems like we're sort of trying to do is on the one hand saying like okay you know we whatever we sinned but like maybe I think what's trying to say is that like this, in a way like you know the what he calls the um, the fact that we're Am Oref has very negative consequences but it has positive consequences because it means we're able to stick to you know our keeping you know to, you know we we also we also stick to, st- you know stick to God and stick to the Torah when we're not abandoning God. Yes. The, the Torah essentially tames yes. and controls the Jews because otherwise the rest of humanity wouldn't be able to abide them. Abide the Jews. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it meant more they would have been destructive to the rest of humanity. Yeah, they something like that. Something like that. Right. Right. So anyway, also maybe it works on them like the tourists, like they got to be cooked or something to be yeah, made edible. Behind them are Shem and Lakish, Gimel Ozmeng. There are three that are very tough. Yisrael, Be'umah, Jews amongst the nations. Keller, the Chayot, the dog. You have to think more like wild dogs and wolves among the animals. Tarnagob Ofot, um, you know, and by the way, the Marsha points out it's not like the dog is the bravest of the animals or the strongest of the animals, but he is like the most the tenacious. Most annoying. Yeah, and well, maybe that. Uh, <laughs> the chicken among birds, I'm uh, not exactly sure what that is. The the ram amongst the uh, amongst uh, domesticated animals. Uh, Daka amongst the small animals. among trees, and Rashi doesn't exactly get what the point is of that. Okay, we will have to end here for now.